Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, friends. I am talking to you. It is the morning of Game 7 of the World Series. Like Christmas morning. What could be more exciting? Man, this World Series has been so great. I hope you've been following along my writing at CBS Sports and my uh, TV-isms everywhere and my radio-isms everywhere. And, and oh, I, it's so lucky. I'm so lucky to be able to do this for a living. I literally cannot believe that I'm going to be in Dodger Stadium tonight, uh, let alone that it's my job to actually be able to report and write about it. It's great. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> I feel great about this. I'm not sure how it is exactly that people get kind of disenchanted with a job like this. Maybe some people do, but, man, I dig it. It's the best. So, uh, yeah, thanks to all of you who consume the stuff that I write and talk about and all that stuff, which allows me to do this incredible job. And thanks to CBS Sports for being fantastic. Today's podcast is with Joe Davis. So I talked to Joe on Tuesday, so that would have been uh, before Game 6 of the World Series. And we were discussing uh, everything. He, Joe is the play-by-play man for the Dodgers. He's the guy who replaced Vin Scully. It's uh, quite the honor. And uh, Joe is very insightful and really, really good at his job, an excellent announcer. Uh, we ran the gamut here. We talked about kind of his path to the big leagues, and we talked about this World Series, and we talked about different kinds of drama and games that he likes and Joe Buck and all kinds of cool stuff. He's he's great. I love Joe. And we've been trying to make this podcast happen for a while. We'd go back and forth on Twitter and couldn't quite figure it out. But then we managed to get together and, and uh, bless him. He came to my hotel. I'm just running around like a chicken with my head cut off. He said, I'll just come to you. I said, great. And so we did it, and it was excellent. Uh, there was a fire drill in the middle of it, too, which you will uh, hear for like one second. Um which is very funny. Anyway, uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast. Joe's terrific. And, uh, yeah, and just so you know, the World Series will uh, end tonight. Uh, and my writing will calm down a little bit after the World Series ends. But I'll still be doing podcasts. You'll still get the podcast every week. And uh, I have a bunch in the can already because um, I'll be taking a little bit of time off in November just to <laughs> gain some sanity. But uh, you'll get all those podcasts. They're going to be great. And I've got some others coming up that are really cool uh, that are on the schedule Still traveling and doing these in person, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, of all the things that I do, I really love the writing and everything like that, but I've said this before, the podcast is it, you know, it, it not only is a lot of fun to get to know people in that way, but it just, it, it kind of changes the way that you look at life, and you start talking to friends, and you say, oh, what about this, and you ask these introspective and probing questions that maybe people aren't used to, and then they open up to you, which is cool, and hopefully I'm opening up in the same way. It's neat, it's neat to be able to... uh to be an old dude like me and to get to 43 and be like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll try life a little differently. And the podcast actually has been part of that, just thinking about uh, interpersonal relationships in a different way. So that's cool. Uh, also, by the way, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Beto Duran, who is a great uh, podcaster in his own right. And I appeared on his podcast, Living the Dream, and you can check that out uh, on iTunes or, you know, just uh, follow Beto on Twitter and you can get that too. But uh, it was cool, and he, speaking of opening up, we went deep. I mean, we were, I was talking about family stuff from, like, when I was 17 years old and all kinds of stuff. A different kind of conversation I think that I've ever had with anybody, at least in a public forum. So uh, Beto's great. Support his podcast, too, Living the Dream. You can subscribe to that. And uh, that'll do it. So here you go. It is today's episode of the Jonah Carey Podcast. It is with Dodgers play-by-play man and Vin Scully uh, replacement, heir apparent, whatever you want to say, Joe Davis. Enjoy.
meet you. I screwed up my neck at the gym today. Like, we already started recording. Your gym thing has been oh, recorded for geez. posterity. No, it's okay. <laughs> Joe uh, Joe Davis uh, has injured himself. Yeah, and it's a problem. So wait, is your neck going to be a problem during the actual World Series? Uh, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. You need like a tripod or something for your neck as you're watching the game. I so I did this this spring too, just being stupid and thinking I'm stronger than I am at the gym, trying to do overhead press. And this spring, I injured my neck doing it. And I did it the morning that my wife and baby and I were going to drive to Arizona. So we had a five-hour drive to Phoenix yeah. trying to sit up in the car with a strained neck, <laughs> not, not able to lift my chin. I looked so ridiculous. We had a towel in the back seat mm-hmm. that I wrapped around my neck and made like into a brace. <laughs> so if you have a towel, maybe I can use that. I feel like you need a medical professional. That could help too, right? Like seeing a doctor. That, that might be the move. <laughs> By the way, as everybody knows, what do you do with overhead press? The move at the gym, you do the glamour muscles, man. You get in there on the chest, biceps, and you abandon everything right. else. Everybody knows that. You don't want a holistic routine. Curls are for the girls is what, what I was always told. Yeah, yeah, here I am just trying to be a little bit bigger than I should be. There you go. Uh, well, Joe, it's a pleasure to have you here. We've been talking about doing this for a while and we have a mutual friend in Joe Block, who mm-hmm. spoke very kindly of you on the podcast. And uh, I'm always fascinated by the journey of uh, broadcasters. We need to talk at length about the World Series, too. Yeah. So I think what we'll do is we will talk World Series first. Cool. If that's okay. Yeah. Um, holy fuck, man. <laughs> like, it, it's, you know, last year was incredible. It was really incredible. Game 7, Cubs-Indians last year. It's probably the best baseball game I've ever been to. It was, yeah. it was ridiculous. And I have this thing, I have this personal affectation or whatever. Like when I get really excited, my reaction is to laugh. You know, something like I just start yeah. Oh my god, and I start laughing and it does not win you friends in the press box. Because you're not you're not supposed to cheer. I'm not like, yay, Rajay Davis, yay Cody Bellinger. You're like, yay baseball. Yay baseball. Yeah. I'm so yay baseball and, and I think that because I'm not a beat writer, I'm not in the long slog for one sixty two plus playoffs. Yeah. Who is this clown, you know, parachuting in and doing this stuff? Uh, what is your reaction when something totally insane happens? I mean, are you just, is there a voice modulation cue in your mind that goes up? It's like, oh, Cody Bellinger. Like, how do you, you got to kind of keep it in check and be an announcer, but you have to express yeah. enthusiasm. Yeah, I think it's something that you you work on over time. And that's something that in minor league baseball, mm-hmm. I think is the biggest thing. That, that you have a chance to work on. The reps are everything yeah. in the business, and I think that's the one of the biggest reasons why is you get to kind of find where you belong in that spectrum of getting excited. So you can go back and listen to my tapes in Montgomery and find me everywhere from right here on the big plays, wow. like not raising my voice at all, to the the impression you did of the Bellinger home run kind of screaming your ass off. <laughs> yeah. you know. So you can find me everywhere in that spectrum, and still, you know, you, you still try to work on it and. I, one of the things I still do is it's hard to go back and listen to a full game at this point. You know, life gets in the way and 162 games get in the sure. way. But I, I still try to go back quickly after the game and at least listen to the highlights yep. to see where, how I felt, uh, how how I felt, how that matched up to how it actually came off. So I felt like I was really punching it hard and doing it justice, and then I go back and listen and maybe it fell flat. Hmm. I learned from that the next night, hopefully, and and you know, kind of adjust that excitement level. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm wondering too. You know, when you get out there, it seems like most broadcasters kind of gravitate toward 
there's a middle range, you know, mm-hmm. that they, they yeah. can excited plus, excited minus, but they're in the excited range. And then you get to somebody like Gus Johnson, yeah. who's just, that is, that's how he makes his living. Mm-hmm. Is that really tough to pull off consistently? Do you need to be some, like a, like a unicorn type almost to be able to do that? Or like, does it not land well with everybody? Because I, when, when Gus does it, people legitimately love it. It works. But I don't. I'm not sure if it would work for everybody. I'm not, and I don't even know what traits you would need to make it so that you're the guy who can do that and other people can't. Yeah, and I, and I think that can apply to a lot of things as a play-by-play guy and really a lot of things in any industry. Trying to be something you're not yeah. is not going to work. It works for Gus because that's who Gus is, man. Mm-hmm. Gu- Gus loves getting up for those big moments, and you can tell that it's genuine and sincere. Whereas if I try to do what Gus does, it just sounds like I was trying to be Gus. You know, it wouldn't sound like, wow, Joe's great at, you know, elevating these big moments by being super excited. It just sounded like I was trying to trying to be somebody who's great at elevating by being extra excited. So yeah. I think you, you gotta you gotta be careful of you know, once you find where you belong, not trying to steer away from it. Hmm. Uh okay, so let's talk about this World Series and this playoff journey. And I think that what's interesting too is you know, the last couple of years we've had cities that just have not experienced that Success at the highest level, right. obviously the Cubs, Cleveland certainly, mm-hmm. Houston never won anything, you yeah. know. So there's that, and in the Dodgers' case, this is five division titles in a row. This yeah. is a, a very successful franchise, but it doesn't have the playoff success. So we're back in recording. That was a fire drill. <laughs> and what's funny is, um, I'm talking to Joe Tuesday, so yesterday basically because it's coming out on Wednesday, mm-hmm. and. I followed my story on Monday night, and I hesitate to use Monday night. It was Tuesday morning uh, at 6.30 in the morning. So if this had gone on in the Houston hotel at whatever, or 10 a.m. or something like that, I would have murdered somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a rough one. Um, yeah, so we're talking about the city of L.A. and kind of the atmosphere for all this, because I feel like there's optimism, but I wonder if there's a little fatalism, too, that it's just, mm-hmm. oh, well, we're going to get to the playoffs, and, and this is going to happen, and something bad is going to happen. What was the sense that you got coming into this year? Did it feel different? Did it feel like, well, this team is better than those teams? We got sh- we can do this? Or was it like, ah, gee, I don't know. Like, it's been rough the last few years. I think that there's there's definitely some of that, and you don't blame them, right? Yeah. It's like the boy who cried wolf kind of thing. Yeah. Four consecutive division titles, but mm-hmm. you know, there's always the but. And and I think that's that's okay. Like the the fans can and probably should have that attitude. It's been a long time since they've won here, so you've kind of you've crossed that off getting back to the World Series because it's been just as long since they've done that. Mm-hmm. If they don't win, though, you're still going to have some of that. I don't think fans are going to be satisfied and say, "Oh, you've won all these division titles. We got to the World Series, though, so we're, we're back." No, it's a it's a bottom line thing. Yeah. You know, they they need to win the World Series for fans to get over some of that fatalism that's going on. Well, and the thing that irks me the most, and I think that a lot of people around the Dodgers say the same thing, is, is the Kershaw narrative, which is yeah. the worst, because uh, especially you being around the team, you would get to know Kershaw a little bit. I've gotten to know Kershaw a little bit. I've written about Kershaw many times, and like nobody cares more about anything ever in the world than Clayton Kershaw cares about pitching. Uh, and, and he works his ass off, and yeah. all of a sudden he's he builds orphanages in Africa. And like, if you wanted to root for a human being to succeed, it would be Clayton Kershaw. Yeah. And and great in his previous couple of postseason starts, and not so good in his last time out. How do you do that as an announcer trying to set the stage and provide context and, and all that? 
you know, with you don't want to perpetuate this false narrative, but also if he's given up bombs, he's given up bombs, he's given up seven or eight this postseason, yeah. that, that's not so great. Yeah, it's, you know, as a Dodger announcer, mm-hmm. you, you try to put a positive spin on yeah, things yeah. Dodger-related. Now, from doing the games for Fox, then it is what it is. I mean, he, he's been one of the greatest regular season pitchers we've ever seen. He's not been that guy in the postseason. With what happened in Game Five, it's hard. It's hard even from a, a Dodger announcer perspective to spin it any other mm-hmm. way than that. Now, and you mentioned how this is Tuesday currently in real life. This is people are going to be listening to this on Wednesday. I hope tonight, as in Wednesday night, is a Game Seven. Yes, and that he has a chance to maybe come out of the bullpen and not not totally change the postseason legacy, but at least shift it. Mm-hmm. Where the latest thing you're going to know about him is maybe something like Madison Bumgarner did in 2014, and can at least start to shift that narrative. Yeah, it seemed like he was there almost. He gave one, eleven strikeouts, and just magnificent. And uh, you know, well, let me ask you this: What do you make of this? Uh, Tom Verducci wrote a column about the uh, uh, the slick baseball. Kershaw in his most recent start throws 39 sliders. By the way, the slider, side note, um, the story that I wrote for Grantland in 2013 talking about Kershaw. Yeah. Kershaw had never thrown a slider in his life, and he goes down to the bullpen with A.J. Ellis and and, uh, and Borzello, the bullpen coach, and throws it, and they all go, that's the best slider we've ever seen. Yeah. He'd never thrown a slider. Yeah. He's, he's Roy Hobbs. But he throws yeah. 39 sliders in his most recent start and one swinging strike. It yeah. didn't seem like I came out of the slider. The Guriel home run was on a slider. Uh, you buying it? It's hard not to at yeah. this point, right? Yeah. I mean, and when it's it's not just guys talking about it, it's what you're mentioning there. We're seeing it actually shown that this is different. You know, the, the results of the slider, like the, the pitch that people are talking about being effective, the results are completely different than you're used to seeing. I just don't know how that, how can that happen, that the skin of the baseball is that different from what it's been previously. Like, I how does that happen? Poor Darvish, who's a real slider specialist, he got crushed. I know. Yeah, it's Verlander. I mean, it's not like it's coming from one team, too. Verlander has a very no. effective slider. He gave up a big hit on that one, too. No. Yeah. I mean, it's not. It, it, everybody's using the same ball, but not everybody relies on the slider, correct? Like Clayton Kershaw does, mm-hmm. like Kenta Maeda does, yeah. Like you, Darvish, and, and you know he has a wide array of pitches he throws, yeah. but. Everybody's using the same ball, but not everybody's affected the same. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. When you're looking over this World Series, well, let's start with Game 1 with the Kershaw start. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a beauty, and Keiko pitched well, too, and it was yeah. really well done. Um, do you have a preference? I mean, these games, some of these games, most of these games have been the 13-12 game, obviously, right. but that one was such a pitching gem. Do you go back and say, I'm a Kofak guy, or are you like, oh, I'm a Barry Bonds guy? Like, oh, I guess I'm, off, yeah, I'm asking yeah. a Dodger announcer that question. That's silly. But you know <laughs> what I mean. Do you prefer that the Slugfest just has so much wild action versus just kind of the old school, like, you know, for a game to take, was it 220 or two, yeah, something like 225, that? 225, 221. Right? Yeah. I mean, is it, does one work better for you than the other? Uh, uh, yeah. I like the tidy, yeah? the tidy two and a half hour game. Uh, selfishly, as a broadcaster, it's hard to be really clean and in rhythm if the game drags. Yeah. So when that game has that great pace to it, guys are getting the ball and throwing it, quick outs are made. And I think there's also, might seem counterintuitive, but there's an added layer of drama and tension when it's not 13-12. Yeah. When you're wondering what swing, what one swing is going to do it. Whereas 
Jose Altuve hits a three-run home run to tie the game in, in Game Five, and there's still another three home runs coming. Uh, so I kind of like the you know the two-one pitchers duel if I had to choose. It's funny you say that about announcers. Uh, during Game Five, it was the middle of the tenth, I think it was, and uh, I'd gone for a bathroom break, and here comes Joe Buck to the room next to me. And the look on his face, man. We're like five hours here. <laughs> you know, these home runs or whatever. It's just like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, 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 it's amazing. And, and game two, two, I mean, I thought game two would be, okay, that's the crazy game. Right. What, I mean. Game it, five. Yeah. Was game two's extra innings. For ten innings. That's right. That's you exactly know? what it was. It was. It was just. It was what happened that made Game Two special. Just the entire night. <laughs> Did Game Two? How does that resonate for you? Because obviously the Dodgers didn't win, and uh, you know the home crowd's disappointed and so forth. When you're calling, let's say, an opponent's dramatic home run, mm-hmm. I think there are different approaches to that too. You're not going to be sure. like, yay. But there has to be a little bit of voice modulation on that too. Oh, well, hot, except for Hawk Harrell's gonna be like, and it's gone, yeah. you know, because he's, yeah, that's Hawk. Yeah, yeah. So how do you approach that? Especially in this city, yeah, because of the the legendary play by play announcers that have been in this city, yes. who were notoriously down the middle, even when they were doing a team. Yeah, Vin doing the Dodgers, Chikern doing the Lakers, mm-hmm. Bob Miller doing the Kings. All these guys. Of course, there was a bit of a tilt to it towards the team they were broadcasting, but they were very fair mm. and very impartial uh, by team announcer standards. So because that's the expectation here, I think that there is probably even somewhat of a conscious effort for me as a Dodger announcer still to give due diligence to the other side. Yeah. Because if I'm at all... You mentioned Hawk Harrelson, who it works for Hawk. Absolutely, it does. Hawk, you know what you're getting with Hawk. If I'm doing that, yeah. that that doesn't resonate well here because of hmm. the expectation that's been laid by the, the greatest ever to do it in the Dodger booth and a lot of the greatest ever to do it across sports here in the city. So I want to get to the Scully legacy. Obviously, we have to talk about that. But that's very interesting about Miller and Hearn because mm-hmm. obviously they're legends. Uh, but I wouldn't have necessarily thought that that would be something that a baseball announcer in L.A. would focus on. But it sounds like you're plugged into the... Local ethos. So, aside from the the balance of it, what did you take away? You didn't grow up in LA, but yeah. you know, going back uh, with Miller and Hearn, whether it's listening to tapes or whether it's secondhand or, or whatever it is, uh, what lessons can you learn from those two guys aside from Scully? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a similar thing mm-hmm. where it's they were number one. They're revered for their longevity. Yes, it, it shows. That well, you're when, starting young, so that's good. And yeah, you're going to the gym, so hopefully this is good. <laughs> Come on, yeah, I yeah. keep doing overhead press. Yeah, I got no shot. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think that the the longevity is not a mistake. I think that it's in this city. I think the fan base will has shown that it's going to wrap its arms around its announcers if you are doing it fairly. For both sides. There's something in common with all these guys. Yeah, they're great storytellers. Yeah, they rise to the moment. But they're not cheating the listeners. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're not going to... If, if Yasiel Puig dogs a ball, if Jock Peterson dogs a ball, these guys are going to tell you. Yeah. They may not beat it over the head, but they're going to tell you what happens regardless of who's doing it, regardless of if it's good or bad for the team that... They're covering. So I think I think that's fundamentally speaking what can be learned from all of those guys. Jonah. Life insurance. It's a pain in the butt. 
I've had to do it. It's not fun. You have to go through a million different companies in comparison shop, and it's too expensive, and it takes too long, and bleh, I don't like it. But you have to do it. Listen, especially if you have kids, which I do, you got to take care of it. Shopping for life insurance, it is confusing. It does take forever, but it doesn't with Policy Genius. Policy Genius lets you compare life insurance from the top providers online. It can take as little as five, ten minutes you can get it done. You want to find a policy that you like, you want to know more, you can talk to one of their licensed experts, or you can just browse and do it yourself online, whatever you want. And not just life insurance, they have disability insurance, renter's insurance, pet insurance, health insurance. Whatever you need, they've got it, and they're great. So if you need life insurance and you've been putting it off, try Policy Genius. You can compare life insurance online on your own terms in your own time. It's policygenius.com. P-O-L-I-C-Y-G-E-N-I-U-S dot com because you should only be forced to speak to an agent if you've committed a federal crime. Okay, so how does one replace Vin Scully? <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. yeah. So let's let's talk, let's talk with let's start with this. Did you ask him? Did you, you the first time you met him was it just sir? It's an honor to meet you, or was it like? Let me try to learn some lessons from this guy. How did you approach that? Yeah, so the first time I met him was the night before my hiring was announced. He called, I was still in Michigan at this point, mm-hmm. and he called me, and I didn't have his number, so I ignored the call twice. <sighs> I ignored two of Vince Scully's calls, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the nice part about that was I got a voicemail out of it from Vince Scully. Which I would keep until my death and make that my outgoing yes. voicemail message and right? all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, side note on that, I... Uh, I thought the same thing, like, gosh, I, I wish there was a way to put this on a shelf or something. This is like my most treasured thing. My birthday was a few weeks later, and I opened up a gift from my wife, and it was a teddy bear with a Dodger shirt. And I was like, oh, you know, cool, my wife got me a teddy bear. With that. Yeah. 20, 28 years old now. Uh, she said, I didn't get you a teddy bear, just a teddy bear. Squeeze it. And so I squeezed the teddy bear, and it played the voice. Oh, that's so cool. uh, How great of a gift is that? Wow. Uh, so anyways, we finally hooked up that night over the phone, and um, it was just it was a pretty brief conversation, him just welcoming me to the team. And, yeah. Uh, but we have had a couple of conversations where I've picked his brain about about the job and, and how to do the job, period, and how the do the job in this city. Mm-hmm. Vin is, and I'm sure you you know this, he's humble to the point where, like, he doesn't think that he's someone who should be sharing advice. Yes. He's uncomfortable telling you how to do the job. So that's a little tricky in that I want to soak up every little ounce of info I can get from Vin, but he doesn't really want to give it because he doesn't look at himself as that guy. And it's not an act. It's not just like conscious self-deprecation. He just literally doesn't think it's, that he's special. Right. Yeah. Which is part of what makes him special. Yes. Right? Um, his biggest thing to me is to be myself. Yeah. And that's the same advice Red Barber gave to him when he, you know, uh, yeah. Second, Two steps from Red Barber. Second-hand advice from Red Barber. Believe <laughs> me. I've, I've thought, about, thought about that many times. I think before Red Barber would actually be... You know, like Moses or something. <laughs> yeah. Like that's that's what I feel the lineage is. Yeah, when Moses took over the Brooklyn, took boot, the Ten Commandments, gave it to Red Barber. Yeah, uh, but it, in a, especially in a baseball season, 162 games. If you're anything other than yourself, you're going to get exposed. Yeah. So I mean, that's the biggest thing, and it seems like a simple thing, just be you. But it's not, especially not when you're. Following for Vin, following Red Barber, who at the time people could probably say to Vin, "Hey, big shoes to fill here. Red Barber is the greatest ever to do this." Sure. That's not far fetched. She didn't yeah. have the longevity Vin had, but it's a similar line of thinking to 
the situation that I found myself in, following the greatest ever to do the job. Yeah. The tendency, I think, in that situation, if you don't protect against it consciously, is to try and be the person that so perfectly has done the job for 67 years and has been the only voice that this city's known since the team relocated. I think the tendency would be to just try and be that guy. But me trying to be Vin Scully is going to be that. Me (laughs) trying to be Vin Scully and falling flat on my face. So taking that simple advice and allowing myself to be myself, uh, that that was Vin's biggest thing to me. You're talking about doing Fox games, and there's a tendency among baseball fans, I think, to be annoyed when there's a uh, when the national broadcast is on because that yeah. guy doesn't know my team the way that other people do. That and it is, you know, if I'm listening, if I'm watching a Mets game or whatever, I mean, I don't know how many people do it better than that three man booth or whatever. Yeah. And even if you look at someone like Darling, who goes into a national broadcast, he doesn't do it the same way. He doesn't have he can't. It's impossible. Sure. He doesn't have banter. He doesn't know them as well. Uh, Darling was on Nationals games. He was kind of going after Brewer Harper and those guys a little bit. And it was, I loved it because I'm yeah. like, yeah, be petty. Yeah. It's amazing. But, you know, Nationals fans were like, what's going on, man? Like, I didn't ask for this. You know, from your perspective, if it's a, if you're calling a Fox game and it's not a Dodger game, uh-huh. are you just on full court press to try to get to the point where you have something close to the knowledge that the local guys have? Yeah. Do you have notes in your ear from the broadcasters? Speak in broader terms so that people who are not... Big baseball fans will understand because, it, by definition, it doesn't seem like they're as hardcore if you're talking on a national broadcast. Yeah, it's uh, and especially in the social media age. Yes, it's right or not. It's made us a whole other a whole other level of accountable. Yes, like you, it probably shouldn't. Like you shouldn't worry about that. But we're all human, mm-hmm. right? You don't like to open up your Twitter feed and see that you screwed something up about these guys' local team. So yeah, you do have to. When I so I did Astros Red Sox yep. Fox and ALDS and I tried to try to it's not going to happen but you try to put yourself in a spot where with a few days of preparation you can not teach but at least talk to the fan who looks at their fandom like it's a full time job yep. you can at least have a conversation with those people about their team. So yeah, I talk to broadcasters from from the teams that I'm covering. I try to get the the general storylines of the season. You dive in a little bit deeper in, in your reading about each player. But you don't try, I think it's really important too, and, and I had a great conversation with Joe Buck before I yep. did this series. It was my first postseason series. He's done a few of them. And so I picked his brain Help. about you know, how, to, how to handle that. And his thing is, one of his things was, don't try to prove to them that you know they're yeah, 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 right? So get to the point <coughs> where you feel like you do. But it ain't going to work if you try to prove to them that you know, because there's going to be a little detail off mm-hmm. that where they're going to say, this guy's an idiot. Even if it's one little thing. And I can relate, because being the Dodger guy, if I see an outsider come in and, and try to talk about it, and this is not saying anything about any national no, no. broadcaster, but when you're in it every day, you know the details down to the very finest detail. So, so yeah, it's just something where... You know it, but you don't try to prove that you know it when you get on that when you get into that neutral national stage. I want to talk about Puig. Um, I love talking about Puig. I love talking about Puig too, and I want to start with this. If I didn't already love Puig, Scully legitimized the phenomenon. Uh-huh. Puig wasn't a distraction. He wasn't too much. He wasn't any of that. He was the wild horse. 
And the wild horse is the exact right term because wild horses, they're, there's a lovely song written about wild horses. It's a great song. In fact, it's done by more than one artist that I enjoy. And there's a certain evocative nature to saying that where it's wild horses are beautiful, wild horses are unpredictable, wild horses are un- it's just it's, Yes, that's exactly right. And he had that the right way. Um, when you were coming into this job, did you... Well, I guess it's maybe it's a general question too, but specifically about Puig... Did you go back and watch old Scully stuff? Did you did the wild horse thing resonate with you? Did did you try to sink your teeth into all that? Obviously, you have to form your own impressions, uh, but I think it would be relevant, you know, especially in this rookie season, which was just like a phenomenon, to have uh, to have absorbed some of that. So I'm wondering how you went about that. Yeah, I, I can't say that I went back and tried to tried to listen to how Vin painted it. I had never even really thought about the fact that him putting that nickname on him helped kind of define him yeah. and, and helped it be helped his act for lack of a, a better sure. word uh, be acceptable when he's performing mm-hmm. right yes. you know, when you perform you get a better chance of uh, being tolerable but i think it doesn't take long when you're watching Yasiel Puig play to have that be the opinion like if you if you give him a chance you know if you're not going into it saying oh this guy this guy's act is is BS. I'm not going to put up with yeah. this. If you don't have those preconceived notions, how can you not watch him and see the joy that he plays with yeah. and love it? Yeah. So for me, it, it didn't. It didn't. I didn't need to go back and listen to the way Vin painted him to kind of have that same impression. Hmm. You know, it was interesting about Puig too. I think the thing that's resonated most of, let's say, these playoffs was not a Puig play. Bellinger. It was the ninth or tenth. It was late, and I guess it was game five. I can't even keep track. Each of these games is like, know, it's right? like it's like Homer's Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> and Bellinger goes over to the stands and puts his knee on the barrier and snacks the ball. Yeah, out of, yeah, out of yeah the it was Sunday night, game five. Game five. And Puig comes over to him. Yes! Yeah, taps his glove. Yeah! Look, what a play that was. And that was Puig. You know, wasn't it licking the bat? All that stuff was great, but it was just yeah. like, Yes. Yeah, I'm so freaking fired up, and we're in this game, and wow, and we tied it up, and it's 12-12, and it just, that's what resonated for me. That's being a good teammate, I think, yeah. to do that. I would right. think so. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I, I don't, he just strikes me as having enthusiasm all the time, uh-huh. which I think most people don't have. They have down switches, and he doesn't seem to have a down switch. Maybe that's what gets people, I don't know about irked, but kind of thrown off kilter, like, no, most yeah. people kind of have rhythms. This guy's at 100 all the time. Right. And I mean, it's, there there are two other things too. Yeah, he's still young. Yes, right, twenty six years old. Yeah, and he's not been in this culture for that long. Correct. Eighty percent of his life was in a different world that none of us can can wrap our minds around, and especially the baseball culture in that world in Cuba. Yeah. So he he's still pretty new to to the culture that says you have to have that off switch now and then. I'm not sure he's ever going to be someone who cares to understand that. And I think that's okay. I, I don't know. I mean, there there are always going to be those people who they get off my lawn types. Yeah. yeah. Where he's never going to be, he's never going to be somebody they like. But hopefully, on this World Series stage, there's a there's a large bit of the population that's now getting to see him play with that joy that he plays with, and I think it's good for baseball. Hopefully, that hopefully the country's thinking the same thing watching him. I don't know how much of this is an open secret or not, but like. It's not been easy for him. The defection no. did not go smoothly. There, I mean, I don't know how far down the road we're supposed to go on this. People in baseball kind of yeah. know this stuff, but 
well, he owes people money, I think. Or they claim that he owes them money, things of that nature. That's, I feel like you can go one of two ways there. You can be terrified and you mm-hmm. live your life in a shell, or you could be like, this is my refuge from these serious problems, and serious problems that most of us do not have and will never have. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, uh, and I don't know the details of that stuff you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, it's kind of anyway. ambiguous, but whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I know enough to know that it was not simple Correct. getting over here, and uh, I don't think it's completely settled. That, that's point. a good and way to put it. I don't know it. that it ever is for those guys no, that risk they, what they do no. <clears> to <throat> come over from yeah. Cuba. So, yeah, and maybe, maybe the joy that he plays with and... Maybe that is like an expression of of this being a refuge from from what is much more real life outside of the ballpark. Not speculation, but yeah. that would make sense. I would think so. And the culture thing too is interesting because I think it kind of invites the question of what's the culture? Who says this is the culture? You know, at this point, the game is about one third Latin born. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we're dealing with. And I went to the WBC this year in LA, went to the finals, and I'd been to WBC game a few years before. And I just have this thing, this is a personal bias, but I'm not, I've never been big on exhibitions. I've never been thing, big on things. That, like, I, I don't, or even the Olympics. I'm just not an Olympic uh-huh. guy. I, I'd rather see, you know, the Dream Team or whatever. I'd rather see the Lakers play the Clippers mm-hmm. or whatever. I, I'm like that. I don't know why. Maybe I mean, pro is the highest level, therefore I'm a pro guy. Yeah. But I'm watching these games. I'm watching Javi Baez. I'm watching all, all these dudes. Colum- Team Columbia. Just like this is the most fun ever. The fans are crazy into it, and each time, not a walk off. If there's an RBI single, twenty guys jump out of the dugout, yes. and it's so fun. Yeah. And I don't know why it was decided that the culture of Major League Baseball is not that because that seems to be objectively more fun. And I'm, I guess I'm wondering, at what point can the culture not be white? At what point can the culture not be what it was in Major League Baseball? Will there be a shift? And what would it take to get to that shit? I think we're seeing it. Yeah. Like, I, I just think back, to, and again, <laughs> I don't know what game it was within this World Series, but where, because it all runs together. I know. Like a weird dream. Uh, I guess it was game two. Correa's bat flip. Yes. Epic. Two, yeah. And then the next inning, Puig almost, like, tips his cap to him by just laying <laughs> yeah, the bat right, down. Right. That's a blast. It was so fun. Why does baseball's culture need to suppress that? What harm does that do? Especially when, okay, if you're going to argue, well, it shows up the pitcher. Listen to the pitchers after the game talk about those moments. Somebody asked, uh, who gave up the home run? Josh Fields, I guess. Kenley Jansen gave up a home run to Gonzalez that night. Somebody asked him about the reaction. And Kenley's quote was, if he hits a home run off me, he can do that. Oral Hershiser, my partner, who pitched in an era that was even more get off my lawn. Yes. Talks about guys when they hit home runs. If they if they hit them, they earned it. They can do what they want. And I, I think that, that hopefully we're seeing the game, as we're seeing so many things within the game shift, this season in particular, I hope that we're seeing that, where, where it becomes more and more acceptable to express yourself uh, and enjoy and appreciate yourself when you do something well. I think the WBC was a great example of what it can look like if we allow that. And by the way... I grew up with Pascual Perez, the most animated pitcher who ever, <laughs> maybe one of the most anyway. And then you've got guys like Jason Grilly. You know, it's a three-run game. He gets yeah. a couple guys out in the eighth, and he's like, yes, yes, yeah, and, you know, like that. So why is it okay for pitchers but not hitters? It, yeah, it doesn't, right. this, this imbalance uh, always got to me. So, yeah, I, I would hope that we get to that point. I love the Puig quote, too. 
they asked Puig after the game about the Correa flip, yeah. and he said, it was fantastic. Like, he was right. crazy. He just said, that's exactly what you're supposed to do, even though he laid the bat down or whatever. And I just thought, well, yeah. And, and maybe maybe we are at that tipping point that it gets to that uh, stage because I think that, you know, as fans, we want to be emotionally invested. Game 5 was just, and it doesn't matter if anybody flipped their bat. It was no, right. incredible what happened. But we want this stuff to be fun. And I guess it kind of leads into my next thing, which is, you know, Rob Manfred is talking about ways to speed up the game. And mm-hmm. I actually have come around a little bit on the pitch clock. I think that I can understand it, uh, just working on things like that. And the general effort here is to try to make people more engaged in baseball, to try to win more young fans mm-hmm. and so forth. Uh, is it changing the culture? Is it speeding up the game? Is it something else? Because right now the game seems to be regional. I'm a big Angels fan, but I'm not that big a big MLB fan. Whereas in basketball, it's like, oh, Curry, LeBron, I'll watch yeah, anything. I love the NBA. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't mm-hmm. know. What, what, what might it take to get to the point where it's more embraced? Because it doesn't seem like, you know, if you're 10 years old and, and not white in America, you're, I don't know how likely you are to be a baseball fan right now or to become a baseball fan. I think part of it is, and I think this is shifting as well, but yeah. part of it is I don't know that baseball's biggest stars, it's not that they – Aren't marketable? Yeah, maybe it maybe it has been that they're not. Like Mike Trout's a pretty boring character, yeah. and that's okay. That's who Mike Trout is, yeah. but it's not okay when you're talking about the marketability to young fans. That's why I think this World Series is so healthy for the game, and for that reason, you're yeah. seeing some of baseball's more gregarious stars, like Correa, like Puig is. I think you can call him a star with the total package Altuve. of what he's doing. Altuve, yeah. right? These are recognizable personalities and. Uh, that, that I think younger fans can latch on to. Yeah. I don't know that a younger fan's going to latch on to a game because it's two and a half hours versus three and a half hours. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's more who can they identify with. They're, the kids are not wrapping their minds around the fact that the game is faster. Mm-hmm. I, I think it, it's not going to hurt if they speed the game up. Yeah. You know, over the course of a long season. But I don't think because a game is 15 minutes short or whatever on average is going to lead to more kids watching the games more consistently. I think it's these young stars uh, becoming bigger and bigger stars. Hey, look who's sponsoring the podcast this week. It's our friends at Blue Apron. Love Blue Apron. They're the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. They achieve this with a sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. And I've used Blue Apron. Let me tell you something, friends. I am a bad cook. I'm bad. <coughs> I, I struggle. It's a challenge. Blue Apron makes it easy. They basically send you a big box, and it's got everything in there. So you've got prepackaged, whatever it is, your protein, your starch, your spices, all that stuff, exactly portioned. They make the instructions really easy to use. From the time you take everything out of the box, the time it's on your plate, yeah, 45 minutes to an hour, and it's fun. You know, it's not too difficult. Everything is there for you. You get it done. You get all the stuff done. You got kids you can cook with your kids. You got a partner you can cook with your partner. Whatever it is you could possibly want, they are fantastic. Really, really great. And get this, upcoming meal. Summer vegetable and egg paninis with Calabrian chili mayonnaise and caprese salad. Soy glazed pork and rice cakes with bok choy and marinated green beans. Skillet vegetable chili with cornmeal and cheddar drop biscuits. Wow. And garlic, butter, shrimp, and corn with green bean salad and roasted purple tomatoes. It's great. They offer stuff that you wouldn't necessarily cook yourself or think to cook yourself, but it's really, really great. 
Check out this week's menu and you can get your first three meals free, that's right, free, with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, but you should know that. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash Jonah, Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Jonah! Yeah. I'm still thinking about Game Five. I, 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 I <laughs> just, just you know what it was. Right? You know what it was when the Dodgers came up in the ninth. I knew they were going to tie the game. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never felt anything more certainly. And but I didn't think that they were going to take the lead because I thought it would go to extra innings. I thought that somehow they would land on three runs, and I didn't know how. And then Puig, Puig comes up, and I'm doing it. Okay, that's a two run home run. It's not going to happen. And then like the wild pitch, and then Taylor comes up. I'm like, oh, Taylor's and Taylor, oh, yeah. Taylor's the peskiest hitter in baseball. Oh, He's like new Ben Zobers. I, I'm such a big Chris Taylor Me fan, too. and I'm just like. Oh yeah, that's a single. Like yeah. I, mean, I just, I, I think I might have written it in my scorebook by then or whatever. Yeah. It was just—I don't even have a question, but it was just this, 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 this phenomenon. This game that I was just yeah. like, have you ever read the Iowa Baseball Confederacy? No, it's a book by a guy named W. P. Kinsella who wrote Shoeless Joe, uh-huh. Field of Dreams. Kinsella, my favorite author. You should read it, and I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll send it to you. Um, the premise of it is that this guy goes into a wormhole, and there's a baseball game that lasts more than two thousand innings, and it's just—it's mystical and magical, and it's wonderful. And, uh, yeah, I, I, was, I thought we were in the Iowa baseball yeah. And the game, even in nine innings, I was like, yeah, this feels like 2,000 innings, but in right. the best possible way. I don't, and I've never, you don't usually get that phenomenon where it's such a long game, but it's so deliriously joyful. Like, I, it didn't matter how long it was. It almost mattered in a good way that it was long because it just, it kept going and it kept going. Yeah. I, I don't, uh, I, I don't, can you sit back and just be joyful that this stuff is happening when you're calling a game? Or do you have to go, okay, well, it's time for this and it's time for me to read my sponsor read. I mean, that game was so unique. Yeah, like that that one in particular, and the fact that on these in the postseason broadcasts, I'm not calling these. I don't know what that would have been like for me to call. Yeah, because I don't know that I can compare that that game five to any game I've ever actually called. Um, not unless you called the David Freeze game, which I did. That's which, what, and by that win win for me win probability added. The David Freeze game was the number okay. one World Series game of all time. It's number two in terms of swings. Okay, that's what makes uh, sense. It's uh-huh. about right. More than Joe Carter, more than Carlton Fisk, more than any of those other games. Yeah, that for me, that David Freeze game was that, that's if I if I overcompensate for recency bias. Yeah, that's that's one where I my mind immediately goes to, and at least for people of my generation, that's got to be number one. You know, win probability for sure or not. <laughs> um, Talked about Joe Buck. I did a podcast with him in the World Series last year, and uh, it's it's the weirdest split because everybody in the industry is like, yeah, Joe Buck is the industry standard, and he's really good and really this and really that. I don't know what it is that gets people that way. Maybe it's perceived bias about the Cardinals, or maybe it's this or that or whatever, something that happened 10 years ago. I don't even think that he's the same broadcaster now than he was no. 10 years ago. What do you make, maybe not so much about Buck, but what do you make about that when an announcer doesn't really hit people right. Like, why, why, what do you think it is? Is it just literally that national local thing, or is there something else going on? Well, forget about Buck, whether it's anybody who gets backlash, what might lead to that kind of backlash? Yeah, but I think, I think it, it's appropriate to ask the question about Joe and okay, yeah. because, and I think what it is, and I've thought about it a lot, yeah. he's the guy that I grew up wanting of to course. be. Of course. You know, for, He's, he's called all the biggest games that I can remember. And football, too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So from for as long as I can remember as a sports fan, he was the guy. Not just a sports fan, but a sports fan wanting to do what he's doing one day. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as a young kid. It's him calling those biggest games has aligned with the advent of social media. Yeah. And I think it's become the popular thing to do on there 
even if you don't know what you're talking about, to dislike him. Yeah. And it's the popular thing to say that he hates your he hates my team. You know, and I get it a bunch from Dodger fans on Twitter. Why does Joe Buck hate us? And like, I'm not going to fire back at people on yeah, this. Yeah. It's just so ridiculous. Yeah. You know, it's it's so unfair to him who is you know, in my generation, the greatest to do this nationally. Yeah. I don't I don't even know how many the percentage of people that that get mad that he hates their team, I would think the percentage of that group is less than 50 that actually know that he has a background with the Cardinals. Hmm. Yeah, especially the younger folks, maybe. Yeah, you're right, you're right. So it's just, it's become, it's like snowballed, it seems like, to where it's popular to dislike Joe, even though there's there's nobody better. So I want to talk a little bit about the path, and we talked about Joe Block before, man. Joe hustled. He he beat the Bushes. He broke in his first major league game was with the Expos, which mm-hmm. still tickles me. It's delightful. Um, represent. Yeah, and, the Expo uh, socks I got on. the Expo socks on. And, um, but I want to ask you about how you went about it. You said that you were already calling games while you were in college, that you would mm-hmm. go and just do a summer's worth of games, which is incredible and, and yeah. unpaid, but you made it happen and were getting reps early. I would assume that's the, one of the best ways that you could do any job is, right, is just yeah, okay, do it. I'm 12. I'm going to jump on. I'm 18. I'm going to however earlier, however earliest you can, you do it. Yeah, yeah. I uh, the, so I played football in college. Yeah, but the recruiting pitch from the coach was that I could announce the basketball games. Right away. <laughs> so, yeah. I, Were you I looked, journalism major? Uh, communications, communications yeah. but <laughs> not at a broadcasting school. In okay. fact, at, at Beloit College in Wisconsin, where I went. They split the freshmen up into – freshmen come a couple weeks early, and you get split up into these groups. I don't remember what they're called or whatever. We have an advisor. My advisor was a physics uh, professor who was also a world-class trumpet player. Perfect oh, wow. kind of advisor to have for a play-by-play guy, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember sitting down with him my first week on campus and going over career plans, and I told him what I wanted to do, and he looked at me and said – what is a play-by-play broadcast? <laughs> oh, shit. Maybe I should have went to Syracuse. But the benefit of that was... Or, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Northwestern, yeah. The benefit was I didn't have to compete with anybody to get whatever reps there, yeah. there were. Yeah. So I kind of had the monopoly on calling games there and had a village of people that were willing to help me create opportunities to get hands-on experience. Hmm. And that is everything, especially in a job like this. It's a very specific skill. Just going out and doing it. Yeah. You talked about the randomness of it, and we were talking about my guy growing up, which was Dave Van Horn, who called the Expos games and still a radio broadcaster mm-hmm. for the Marlins. I think he's in his 80s now, so that's pretty good. And he talked about, yeah, they pulled the tape off the top of a pile of 300 people. Or Did you have one of those random experiences? I feel like so much of it is skill and hard work, and, and there has to be some luck involved. Do, oh, yeah. do you remember what your luckiest stroke was, other than the fact that I guess you have never replaced Vin Scully? That's pretty lucky. <laughs> but. But, I mean, in terms of just, like, randomness. Yeah, it happens a lot. Uh, I mean, there's a story that's been told a couple times about me writing a letter to Len Casper. Mm-hmm. Who's wonderful, sure the is, best. Man. Such I'm a good guy, too. So lucky to yeah. have him in my corner, yeah. yeah. Uh, wrote him a letter while I was in college, going to a Cubs game with my dad. Dropped the letter on the way to the stadium. Owner of the Taco Bell across the street found it, called me later that day, said they'd give it to Len, got it to Len. The Taco Bell! Taco Bell, yeah, yeah. Uh, Len wound up being somebody who, when I got my first job in Montgomery, Alabama, was my reference that called when I was a finalist. Jeez. Still one of my, pretty good, one of my 
you know, greatest mentors, and I consider him a, a great mentor and a great friend now. So that's that's luck that that letter found him. Yeah. When I was in Montgomery, my first minor league job, Montgomery Biscuits, yeah. Tampa Bay Rays, Double A affiliate. Yeah. One of my first games, I got an email from a guy. Uh, just you know, you you get there were a hundred listeners, and ten of them would email each night in the minors, right? And this guy sent a nice email the first night that he was tuned in from Connecticut. Emailed me again a week later, and it was like a critique of my first week. And I'm like, well, who the hell is this? <laughs> right? What, what, what are we doing here? I thought you were a, a fan listening. And I got down to the bottom of the email, and it said ESPN Communications. And I'm like, you, are you kidding me? What is going on here? Amazing. It turns out this guy, and he, he wasn't. He wasn't anybody who like could hire anybody at mm-hmm. ESPN. He worked in, in PR there, and um, he had hurt his. I think he blew out his Achilles playing pickup soccer or something, and so was on injured leave from work. And read about the biscuits, logged onto the website to buy a hat, clicked on the listen live link, decided to, to stick with it, and liked what he heard. Became a biscuits fan. Is that the Desmond Jennings era? This was right after Desmond Jenny. So this was Matt Moore, Chris Archer. That's pretty good. Matt Moore, Chris Archer, Alex Cobb, Jake McGee. Holy cow! Oh, it was. It was That's as good as it gets. Yeah, Adam Libertor, Alex Torres. It was. It, we yeah. had quite the pitch in there, but uh, we kind of became friends, this guy and I. And uh, the next year, just in kind of in passing, um, he asked me if he could help me book any guests for my pregame show, and it's like I, I don't. Need that, but could you introduce me to somebody ESPNU? Sure. And so he made sent an email or two and got me hooked up with some people there. And my the thing that uh, I don't want to say got me out of Montgomery, but the thing that caused me to leave the biscuit yeah. job was I signed a two year contract with ESPN through relationships that I guess the genesis of them were this random ass lock that this guy tuned wow. in. And you're like 22, 20, I was twenty four when 24. I signed with ESPN. Wow. 21 when I took the biscuits job. Wow. Yeah, that's cheap. Pick up soccer. It's amazing. What yeah. did you order at Taco Bell that day? I didn't actually even go to Taco Bell. I just happened to drop the letter in front of it. Oh, my God. Good thing I didn't drop in front you of McDonald's. Who knows what they would have done there? <laughs> you should have ordered a gordita crunch or something. <laughs> you got to make that happen. Yeah. And, and so, what do you remember the day that you got the call from the Dodgers? I'm sure you do. What, what was the... What was the reaction? Did you feel like, okay, I'm a front runner? Like, how did they telegraph it for you? And and finally, the realization: oh yeah, I'm replacing Vince Cully, no big. Yeah, uh, it was a weird, kind of a weird process. Not your traditional. Oh, there's an opening. Oh, they like you. Oh, you're a finalist. If yeah, you, yeah. You didn't. It didn't have that traditional uh, arc to it. I guess because this hasn't happened too many times, where the greatest ever to do it stepped away. One time, Red Barber. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, Fall of 2014, mm-hmm. fall 2014, I think, yeah, my agent called and said, hey, do you have an updated baseball tape? The Dodgers are starting to talk about uh, what life will look like once Vin decides to hang it up, and I, I sent it over, and I thought, wow, yeah. They, and at that point, I was like, I don't even know if I if I would want that, if that would work. You know, I'm, I'm doing this great package with Fox, and yeah. I, I don't know that it would line up. A few months later, I was in L.A. for a, a Fox meeting and decided to swing by the stadium to meet some of the people that we had been in contact with and didn't know how significant the interest was other than it was cool that they knew who I was. Well, I sit down in that meeting, and they tell me that I'm one of three or four people they're considering. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. So this is, maybe I need to really start thinking about this. 
And I remember them saying, if you're interested, and you know, you're told you're always you're told your 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 answer is yes, I'm always interested, and yes, I, I know how to do this, and then you can always retract it moving yes. forward. But my initial thought was, I think I am, but still, like I'm in a good spot with Fox. Hmm. So I called my wife and I said, Honey, uh so this is like a real thing here. You know, they're very interested. This was February of 2015. Several months go by, and uh, you know, I don't think this is—I don't think this is like private anymore. Yeah. Brian Anderson and Matt Vaskersian were guys that they were Poor. very excellent. Excellent. Yeah. They were very interested in. Um, ultimately, it wasn't the right fit for those guys. Yeah. And my agent was in town in Grand Rapids where I was living in Michigan just for a little uh, couple day golf uh, trip and we were headed to my wife was driving us we had a few too many Oberons on the golf course that day so never have too many that's right we that's were right. driving driving that's to dinner sure Michigan that's yes, yes Jonah Bells Michigan. too right Bells uh-huh. alone yeah oh man respect yeah. I mean you're a Denver guy you, you, you can respect I've crafted a few crafts yes yeah. um, and Josh my, my agent gets a call from another agent back in the office in New York and said, hey, call Lon Rosen at the Dodgers. Yeah. And we had been talking on the golf course that day, like, wow, you think it could really happen? Like, it, it would be awesome if it did. And uh, we get to dinner, and Josh, my wife and I go to get us a table, and Josh is out in the parking lot talking on the phone, and he comes in, and he, you know, he's like, we got a table yet? I'm like, you kidding me, dude? Like, what? What's going on? <laughs> and he wanted, they wanted to hire me. Oh, my God. So it was, it was... Uh, several times out of the blue, all at the same time, knowing it was like I knew that it was real and that I had a really good shot, but it that didn't add up. There was no way that it was too good to be true that I even had a shot. And then it kind of smacked me in the face that they wanted to hire me. That was June, 2015, and yeah. several there were several months between then and the point where we actually figured it all out because I didn't want to stop doing the national stuff, and I, I lucked out that both sides agreed to. Make it happen. And so when you were doing, you come in 2016, mm-hmm. Vin's still there, so there's a transition period. Yeah. I, and obviously, you know you have the job, so it's fine long-term or whatever. Was I, would you have rather jumped in with both feet, or was it, oh, okay, you know, like, let's do this transition period and whatever, and Vin's there, mm-hmm. and let me figure it out, let me get, like, get my feet wet. Not that you, were, you weren't an inexperienced broadcaster at that point by any no, means. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, that's a different kind of experience. Usually it's, okay, we're years end, cool, we have a new guy. Here yeah. it's, okay, we're going to blend him into the mix. I think it was perfect. Yeah? Both for me and, more importantly, for the fans. Okay. Where <clears throat> it, wasn't, it wasn't as jarring, because it's going to be jarring no matter what, when, when Vin is gone and... The new guys there, 67, but to, 67 years. years, and right. every year the team has been here. It's yes. the only announcer they've ever known. Yes, um, so to kind of ease in and at least have some people get a taste of me uh, for one year, I think that it was it was it was big for the fans. Hopefully, to not have it be as jarring when I stepped into a full time role, and good for me too to ease in for those same reasons. What was the fan reaction? Whether it's social media, whether it's email, whether it's coming up to you in the ballpark, what did you what did you get? I, I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be mostly positive, but I imagine it well, can't be 100 percent, or maybe no, it's of course not. I, I'm going to miss Vin or whatever. How, how did that right. go, How did that go for you? Uh, I prepared myself for the worst. Really, I did. Yeah, I. I, I mean, again, this is kind of an unprecedented thing because yeah. of what Vin is. Yes. Um, so I, I, I knew and would be able to understand if people weren't okay with me, but I've been blown away. Nice. With how, with how people 
how kind they've been. And it says more about them than it does about anything I've done. But they, they've made, from day one, me feel very welcome. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I never sat in that chair and thought, I don't belong here. And a large, that's largely because of the way people have welcomed me and my family with open arms. And, of course, you're still going to have the people that say you're not Ben. And I always quickly say, you know, I'm happy to say you're, you're damn right. I'm yeah, you're right. Nobody is. Uh, and you're always going to have people that where it's a very subjective thing. I, I'm just not their style. Mm-hmm. That's fine, too. But uh, thankfully, that, that feels like a really small portion of people, and it's probably a much bigger portion than I realized, but a very small portion of people who felt the need to voice that with me. Uh, that's all exciting. Uh, I have one question which I do at the end of every podcast is I always ask the guest for a life tip, for a nugget of wisdom, for something mm-hmm. that uh, is their thing. If I meet you at a bar, I say, I'm Jonah, and this is what I'm about, and you say, I'm Joe, and this is what I'm about, and it can be... A major philosophical breakthrough, or it can be like, oh yeah, when I wear loafers, I don't wear socks. Whatever, whatever you got, <laughs> whatever is a okay. very, just like you know, your friends are describing, your family's describing. You're like, oh, this is that's Joe. Like, this is what you need to know about Joe. Okay, yeah, we actually have a sign in our house that says "Work hard and be nice." Nice. And yeah, we I, I found that sign after I kind of embraced that as, and that's not, that's not anything fancy or profound, but, and, and it applies in any, in any job and any, anything you do, it helps to not suck, right? You need yes. to be okay with what you do, but that's like one third of the equation. You got to work your tail off. And I think actually I'm not good at math, but those, <laughs> those two parts are smaller. The be nice part. It's such a simple thing. And, it's easy to overlook when we get so caught up in the working hard part right. and the being good at what you do part. But the being nice part, it doesn't take much work, and it's 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 a really important part of success. Yes, I think. And and you're not being nice to be successful. That's, That's the it. Wrong it had, way it's to an look intrinsic it. good. Yeah. But it lets you get away if you biffed something. Yes. Well, that guy's not a dick. That's fine. I yes. don't care. Like, it's 100% pragmatically true. And there are examples of it going the wrong way yes. in this business and in any, any industry where you don't get the benefit of that. Barry Bonds is not in the Hall of Fame because he wasn't nice to the media. It has nothing go. to do with steroids. There Other guys go. did steroids. Or, or allegedly, whatever. But uh-huh. I, I think that's it. Yeah. So, well, so and I don't care because I love Barry Bonds anyway. But that's, that's no, what happened with other example. people. Yeah. Work hard and, and be nice. And I mean, it sounds too flowery, but I think if we all. We all kind of uh, embrace that, and it's going to be a pretty cool place to live. This world, flowers, good. I like flowers. Yeah, we'll work hard and be nice. Then that's good, uh, Joe. This has been an absolute pleasure. You came Boy, to my hotel room. Place. We had a fire drill. <laughs> we connected a lot for a yeah, first time meeting, and uh, and I wish you all the best of success. And uh, we're going to get to Game Six at the stadium, and maybe a Game Seven. This could, I mean, we don't know after last year, but there is a chance that this could end up being the best World Series wow. ever played. Ever. It wow. is possible. Yeah. If we get two more epics, I would say it's the best World Series you ever You think played. so? Because of five and two. Uh-huh. And, and, and the, the swings of it, the two teams being, ever, all, inherently two World Series teams are always good. 205 wins before the two te- between the two teams. I think that historically, and I just, I, I'm a big history guy, mm-hmm. I think you can make the case. It's got to be a big six and a big seven. If uh-huh. that happens, I think we're there. And, and also, I think the and it's been it's been well written about by several people but 
kind of how it's representing where baseball is at so perfectly, mm. right? I mean, you, you have obviously the games are amazing, but it's just such a wonderful example of what the game is now. Some people may not use "wonderful" as the <laughs> word, but it, it's just so perfectly baseball in 2017. Home runs and that, strikeouts. Yeah, and I don't know if that should contribute to it being the greatest World Series ever, but yeah. there's just so many little things to it that that I agree with you. Kind of set it apart. Maybe Game Seven finishes with. Something epic like a, a four-inning outing, if we get to a Game 7, uh, a four-inning outing from Clayton Kershaw, something like that. I have a feeling that if we get to a Game 7, it's going to be Chris Taylor at the plate in the 17th inning, oh! and it's going to be 512 pitches. He's just, he's just, that guy's going to grind you and grind you. They're going to have to make pitching changes during the at-bat. God, I love Chris Taylor. Uh, I love baseball. Baseball's fantastic. That's good stuff. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Jonathan.